Well, if you bought your if you brought your Bible, uh, perhaps you bought it as well. Um, Go ahead and uh, pull it out. We use those each and every Sunday. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have not bought a Bible and you don't have one, you can take the one that's underneath the chair in front of you, home with you. Everybody should have a Bible um, uh, to, to read at home. Should, uh, should God begin to call you and, and bring you into the scriptures, it should be just an arm's reach away. So go ahead and bring that home with you if you don't have a Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be working from today, like Dave let us know. Um, well, as we continue in this series, um, like Dave was saying, today is such a special day. We, we perhaps have chosen this book of the Bible, this letter that Paul wrote, to just preach this chapter. <laughs> right, Dave? To just preach this chapter. And so, you know, if, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, and you've been like, whew, these nine months have been a slog through some pretty intense issues. No, we didn't necessarily pick this book to preach on those issues, although it's good that we, that's why we preach through books of the Bible, so that we, we have to deal with certain issues as we, we uh, follow God, and, and we just are faithful to the scriptures, and we said, you know what, we have to go through a lot of stuff to get to 15, but it's worth it, and so here we are. We've worked really hard to get here. Praise the Lord. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15, it is the mountain peak of this letter. It, it really is. It, it serves as the conclusion, but also as the climax of this letter. And, and, and here we have a more complete and comprehensive articulation of the gospel, primarily the resurrection piece of the gospel, than anywhere else in all of the scriptures. Paul's going to articulate it more clearly, more completely, more comprehensively than anywhere else in all of the scriptures. It's beautiful. So much ink has been spilled on this chapter. And, and if we truly grasp what he's articulating here, this is the beauty of it, you can take the gospel and you can trace the lines from the gospel to just about every single corner of your life. That's what this chapter is trying to do. That's what this chapter is undertaking. It's no small task. So much ink has been written about it. So many sermons have been preached on it. It's, it's probably very likely that you yourself have, have reached into the depths of 1 Corinthians 15 and, and found life and encouragement and inspiration from it at different points in your life. But you, this is what, this is what we're here to do. This is what Paul's doing with the Corinthians. You probably don't fully grasp what's going on here, which is why we're in it. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, you don't come to church to be told what you already know. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully that's not why you're, you're coming to church, to be told what you already know. Hopefully you come to church to, to discover these scriptures afresh with us, to, to, to hear them in a, a, a new way, something old communicated in a new way that, that you can grasp onto and, and hold and take with you as, as you leave here. That you come here hoping for new ears, new eyes, God to give you a new mind and a new heart to understand, see, hear, and perceive everything that he's trying to do through these scriptures. That's why we do this every Sunday. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, there's something here that you probably haven't grasped, and that's okay. That's okay. And that's why we're slowing down. So if you're here the last three weeks, we took three weeks to go through three chapters, and now we're going to slow down. We ran through those, now we're going to slow down to a walk. We're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 15 over the next four or five, six. Who, who knows how long it goes? Through a lot of Sundays. Because there's stuff here that we haven't grasped. Um, we need it. We need it. 
We need it not only just for its intellectual truth, but, but because this intellectual truth is actually going to take hold of every piece of our lives. It's going gonna, it's gonna to breathe purpose into every piece of our lives. It's going to bring meaning into every piece of our lives. It's going to bring joy into every piece of our lives. And I hope, I'm not over-promising here, because these are big promises, that the resurrection touches everything. That's what this is all about. And so if you're sitting there as a Christian, or you're sitting there as a non-Christian, and you find you're disillusioned with life. You find you're floating through it, and at several points you're just asking, what is the purpose of it? Why am I going to work? Why, why am I leaning into these relationships this way? Why do I do that? What's the point of it all? If you're disillusioned, if you don't have meaning or purpose or joy in it, 1 Corinthians 15 is your cure. You see, this is what Paul's doing. We've just gone through this long, long letter where he's been addressing problem after problem after problem with Christianity. Or, well, with the, the Corinthian community, actually. Let me remind you of them. They turned their church into a public speaking club and, and were forming allegiances of really behind the most charismatic teachers, which is leading to all sorts of envy and strife and divisions in their midst. They were permitting outlandish sexual expressions that even the onlooking pagans thought was gross. They were taking one another to court. The married people, they didn't know how to conceive of sex within marriage. The unmarried people were were anxious, increasingly anxious about their their singleness. They didn't know if they could eat the food that the pagans had sacrificed to idols and and were selling in the marketplace. They didn't know how to interact with the culture around them. Their worship services had devolved into prideful use and, and, and public prideful displays of just their gifts making them not just useless to each other, but seem crazy to outsiders. They had forgotten the very nature of love, love of God, love of one another, love of the outsider. Now, Paul has addressed each of these with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. If you've been with us for the last nine months, we've, we've, did, we've did, like, deep dived into each one of these issues, which is to say that, that he didn't just look at the teaching of Christ. We haven't been like the wisdom of Christ and looking at, well, oh, what did Christ have to say about these subjects? No, he's been addressing them with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. That's what we've been saying. He's been addressing them with even just the very person of Christ and, and his work on the cross and his resurrection. And, and today, chapter 15 is really going to underscore all of it because Jesus didn't just come as a teacher. He came as a Messiah, the Christ. And it's his actions as the Messiah, namely the resurrection, that Paul really sees as the silver bullet to all of those problems. The resurrection is the silver bullet to all the problems the Corinthian church was, was facing, and he's penning chapter 15 here to prove it, to prove it. And, and at, the, at the start, Paul spells out the gospel, and, and from there he's going to expand on the resurrection to help, expand our, to help expand the conception of everything the resurrection touches for the Christians. So let's read his introduction together, and we'll dive into it. So 15, we'll start in verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, or remind you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, 
then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. A very beautiful and concise description and presentation of what the gospel of Jesus is. And, and we could actually dive into a dozen elements here of, of, of what Paul is saying the gospel is. Okay, we could, there's so many things. I probably wrote two sermons worth of material this week, and, and to bless all of you, I threw half of them away, okay? Because there's this great, concise gospel message that has both parts of the gospel in it here. We have the death of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. People saw him. So, so, so as much as it pains me not to talk about how the gospel of the good news, all these different elements... The fact that Jesus died for our sins as a great substitution that paid our debt and satisfied God's justice and how the gospel is something that God does as, and not something that we do contrary to all the other religious systems of the world. This is all this beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, all these concepts are pregnant here, but, but, but we have to move past them so we can really take a hold of what Paul is trying to do with the Corinthian church. Because when we grasp that, that's actually what we need as the 21st century Seattle church. There's a ton of overlap here. There's so much overlap. The first fact we come to here is that Christians forget the gospel. Christians forget the gospel that was preached to them, that they received, that they took stand on, and that might be presently saving them. They forget it. That's what he says at the very beginning. I need to remind you, hey, listen up. I need to make it clear for you again. And guess what? Guess what, guys, that I'm making clear for you? It's the central core of the Christian message. Christians forget the gospel. It's true. I mean, th th this notion that Christians forget, the if you would have told me at the beginning of pastoral ministry, I'd have been like, no, surely, no, no, no. Real Christians don't forget the Yes, they do. Yes, they forget the gospel. We forget it all the time. And, then, and we need to be reminded. So I'm unpacking it today. And as I'm unpacking it today, um, and you feel like it's you that you would say, oh, I forgot the gospel. That's okay. That's okay. You don't need to pretend that you knew it. You, you can't say, I knew this once, but I've forgotten it. But you don't, you don't need to pretend that you knew it right now. You don't need to get uber defensive as we're going through it and say, oh, I, I had this down the whole time. Christians are human. They forget things. They forget things, and, and they need to be reminded of the gospel and have it made clear to them throughout their lives. That's why here at Sedaris we say, never stop considering. Never stop leaning into the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is doing for the Corinthians, and we can take note and do the same. Christians forget the gospel. What have they forgotten? What's the subject that, that Paul jumps to right after this articulation of the gospel? You, you see, the, the gospel, it can be scriptural. It's according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Paul has in mind not the gospel accounts with the Old Testament 
According to the scriptures, the Christ is going to die for our sins. According to the scriptures, he's going to be raised, and then it's historical, and he was buried. And he appeared. And he appeared. It's, it's, so while the, the gospel is scriptural, it's historical, these last three verses, verses 9 through 11, tell us what? That it's also personal. The gospel is also, it was personal for Paul. He's talking about his personal experience here. And what personal thing is he wrestling with? Has he experienced with regards to the gospel? It says it three times there. Grace, grace, grace. The grace of the gospel. That's what he's trying to tell them. Grace, grace, and grace. Now, what is the grace of the gospel? It's a great question, you know. Um, it's primarily twofold, and it has to do primarily with, with how we see the cross and, and the resurrection happening. And, and Paul's going to really explore this side of the resurrection grace in the rest of chapter 15. First, it's God's unmerited gift, okay? That, that's a gift that you didn't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it of your salvation. Your salvation from what? From the penalty of sin. Christ died for our sins, Paul says. So our, our salvation, it's the, the grace of salvation, primarily stemming from and, 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 and coming from the cross of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, there's the grace of the gospel is God's unmerited gift of his continued influence operating in your regeneration, in new life. And, and that's primarily stemming from and mediated by the resurrection. Are you with me? So, so, so the grace of the gospel is twofold. It's twofold, salvation and regeneration. Now, now they aren't in completely different camps. These two do interplay and, and overlap each other, more like a Venn diagram than, than two separate things. But, but, but they're two, the, the two main uh, means of grace that come to us through the gospel, salvation and regeneration. Now, we need to unpack these a little bit more. These are fancy, big words that theologians have used for hundreds of years that that, you know, we, we can kind of nod our head and say, like, yep, I believe that. You know, but that's not, I think that's what Paul's guarding against. He gives a simple gospel presentation, then what does he do? He takes a long chapter to unpack what these terms actually mean and how they actually come to play. So, so let's start with the grace of salvation of the cross. On the one hand, the grace of the cross says you are completely undeserving. This, this is what Paul said. He said, I should not have been one of these apostles because I persecuted the church of God. I'm completely undeserving. Why? Because of our sin and rebellion to God. But, but, but part of the good news, the, the gospel, is that Jesus came and, and died for our sins, for our rebellion, for us. And that's an act of mercy and grace. Mercy in the sense that God doesn't punish us for our sin and grace because he gives us something we don't deserve, forgiveness through Jesus Christ. See, this is the humbling part of the grace of the gospel. This is, this is the grace that, that the cross, it forces. It brings you down, puts you in your place. It says you are a sinner. You are a sinner. The gospel is primarily about sin and substitution. Now, are we uninformed and unenlightened beings with regards to this world? Yes, sure. Are, are we people who are suffering and in need of, of relief and care? Yes, sure, ab absolutely. But first of all, we are sinners in need of salvation. That's what the gospel says. Sin is our most fundamental human problem. You see, sin stems from the reality that there's a good God who created you and sustains you. He holds you together each and every day. 
He sustains your existence and his intentions towards you are good. And if there is a God like that who created you, sustains you, his intentions towards you are good, then you owe him everything. You owe him everything. You don't just owe him a prayer when you're in trouble or something like this, but you owe him everything to live for him totally and his design and with the world and his intentions with creations and your life. And sin is the fact that we choose not to live for him all the time. We don't want that design for our life. We want our own. So we don't live for him. We don't love our neighbor. We love ourselves and our design, which is really just rooted in our own passing and changing desires throughout the course of this life, our own passing and and changing temptations that we might experience through the course of this life. Sin is we live selfishly and ruin the world. That's sin. That's sin. We live selfishly. We ruin the world. And that puts us at odds with the good creator. That creates alienation. That creates separation between us. There's a debt we owe. There's a justice that needs to be maintained. If if you had a friend who constantly stole your stuff, you wouldn't be friends much longer until they paid you back and justice was maintained. Right? Like, until justice was restored in your relationship. And the good news of grace says Jesus came and died to pay that debt. Jesus came and satisfied that justice between us and God. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do. It humbles us. It brings us out. It brings us down. Now, the Corinthians and many of us in this room think that's the full extent of the gospel. Mercy and grace of the cross. But that's a a, a reduction of the gospel. That's only one part of the grace, and and Paul's going to blow up the other grace for us here. He's going to balloon, and it's going to get real, real big, real, real quick for us here. The gospel's not just the mercy and forgiveness of the cross. That's too small of a gospel. The sad thing is a Christian can live their whole life Functionally leaning into that as their gospel. I use the word functional. Functional just means that's the only part of the gospel they use to inform and and give them energy and give them life. It's a a sad, sad existence. Doesn't mean they're not saved. Well, I wouldn't say that, but it just, it could be so much more. That's what Paul's saying. Guys, there's so much more to this. Your lives could be so much more meaningful, so much more purposeful. It's all tied to how God raised Jesus back to life. Cross brings you down. It humbles you. But do you know what the resurrection does? It transforms you. empowers you. It brings you back up. Uh, Counterintuitively, this is what the Corinthians needed. Why do you think they're inventing all these ways to be brought back up and be seen as great in one another's eyes? They weren't using the resurrection grace that had been given to them. They were using all these other ways to elevate themselves because they weren't letting the gospel do it. That's their problem. Paul says, by the grace of God, I love this, I am what I am. Right here. I am what I am. Why is he saying this? Is he saying that by the grace of God, he's a saved sinner? No, he's not. He's referring to his transformed and authoritative status as an apostle. He's talking about how through resurrection power, God raised him up and transformed him. He's talking about how just like Jesus, he rebukes Peter. 
Just like Jesus, he, he heals people. Just like Jesus, he casts out demons. The original 12 disciples, of which Paul was not, they sat at the table, Jesus, the Last Supper, Jesus looked at them and he said, you guys are going to do greater things than even I'm doing. Paul here says, I'm doing greater things than those guys. Whoa! This is resurrection, transformation, and power. This is the grace of the resurrection because of God's grace. He makes sure to give God the credit. This is God's grace working in me. This is the gospel doing stuff to me. This is not me doing it. This is God doing it. That's the, that's the cornerstone of the gospel. It's not something we do. It's something God does. God dies for us. God empowers us. God transforms us. And by his grace, we work harder than Peter. We do greater things than Peter. It's kind of a swipe at Peter. I like that. That's the gospel, the grace of the resurrection. He's going to take the next chapter and pack it for us. The gift of the resurrection goes like this. The grace of it. It's God's promise to renew all of creation. Heaven will one day come down the earth. In the blink of an eye, we'll all be given new, heavenly, resurrected bodies and live forever together with him on a redeemed planet. What's more, God sends his Holy Spirit now to jumpstart the process, to get working in our minds and in our hearts to ready us for our coming bodies. That's the grace of the resurrection. Those are the gifts that we don't deserve that God is giving to us right now. God accepts us through the grace of salvation. God transforms us through the grace of resurrection. That's the simplest way I, I, I can put it. But when it comes to resurrection grace, the gift of the resurrection, we're like the children who on Christmas morning receive a new bike, but in the afternoon are still riding our old bike. You say, Ryan, that's, that's a little too far. We don't do that. Yes, we do. We do it all the time. We do this all the time. We take the new gift of transformational redemption that we've received, the Holy Spirit and the, the promise of this future, restored, beautiful creation, future, restored, more beautiful bodies that we're all going to get, more beautiful relationship with God that we're going to have. We set it aside. We say, nah, this life is really good enough for me. This life is really what I need to maximize right now. I need to squeeze out as much of these pleasures from this life as I can while I can. I need to make enough money to buy the experiences that I want to experience before I die. I need to make enough money to buy the things that I want to touch and hold and have before, before I'm out of here. I need to say and do the right things so, so my friends and, and my family like me and accept me and don't think less of me. I need to prioritize my own desires, the desires of my family above all else. I need to get as much power and influence for myself while it's there for the taking. I need to control this life perfectly and make all the right decisions because I only get a couple of years in Seattle or we only have a couple of years before we're going to have kids or the list could go on and on and on. We ride the old bike while the new one collects dust in the garage. Um, I, I, walked a docu- I watched a documentary on Paul Walker this week, actually, uh, you know, that the actor made famous in the Fast and the Furious franchise. This is exactly where you thought I was going to go with it, right? 
um, the actor made famous by Fast and the Furious. Um, I, I watched it because I was flipping through uh, Netflix and, and I noticed um, that I saw the trailer and there's all of his friends and families were speaking as as if Paul was this very uber-enlightened individual who had really figured out what was important in life and how to prioritize it and, and find full satisfaction in life. And I was like, oof, I'm preaching on this this Sunday. I better give this a listen. You know, see what's going on here. Um, and uh, it was so interesting because as I, I watched and I listened, I, I realized the exact opposite was at play. That, that, that while he was born with these natural, great looks, good-looking guy, um, incredible charisma, you know, which is, I realize, debated. Some people don't like his acting. That's okay. I, he's a very charismatic guy. Very charismatic. He actually was a prisoner to the old bike. He was obsessed with getting the most out of life that he could while he was alive. His friends, his family, his manager said this over and over again. He's like, Paul would just keep on disappearing for a week, two weeks, a month at a time. No one knew where he went. He was surfing. Just trying to get that next thrill, trying to get that out. He, he couldn't really commit to his family outside of just throwing them money for things when they wanted it. He wasn't involved in raising his daughter until she was a teenager because he had an obsession for wringing as many thrills out of life that he could, and it ended up killing him. It literally killed him. It's so sad. And I learned that all the positivity his friends and, and his families had about him was actually with regards that in, in the, the few years leading up before his death, he was actually contriving and, and thinking about how he might quit the game and get out of acting and just live. And, 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 it, and it clicked. I understood them. I understood why they were praising him. They thought that this was an incredibly enlightened person, not because of anything he said and he did. There's nothing incredibly enlightened there but because he was in the position where he didn't have to work anymore and he could just ride the old bike as much as he wanted. And they were vicariously hoping that someone could make it, someone could do just that, and just as he was about to do it, he died. But that's truly what made them, or made him this hero in their minds. That truly is the desire of unredeemed humanity. They, they almost saw their hero do it. And while it crushed them to lose their, their, their friend and, and, and their family member, it also crushed them to see that that dream wasn't attainable even for the richest. Even for someone who had the power and the choice and the desire to make it wasn't attainable. It is tragic in some sense. It's more tragic that no one ever told him there was a better bike, that he never found the better bike to ride with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. The grace of, of, of the resurrection is the promise of the full redemption that Christ bought for us on the cross, that we will live together forever in imperishable new heavenly bodies in a new heaven-earth city right here, right here on earth. When we don't grasp that grace, when we don't trust the gospel in that way, we don't lean on it like it's true and it's real and it's coming, all we focus on is pleasuring our present bodies, experiencing the present creation, about enjoying the life of the city now. Now, now don't misunderstand. I'm not outlawing enjoyment of this present realm at all, okay? This isn't some aesthetic call to be monks and nuns 
Although perhaps it is a, a good opportunity to just consider that they might be motivated by resurrection grace a little bit more than the rest of us. They're not just weirdos, perhaps, perhaps. When we don't grasp it, oh, oh I, was, I was saying, we're not outlawing enjoyment of this present realm. It's not a call to abstain. We're just calling you to consider, to evaluate. We're going to do this over the next month. Why you pursue anything in life? What's the motivation behind it? Is it fueled by the grace of the resurrection? Or popularity? Acceptance of the world? Leisure? What's motivating our hearts and our minds in this world? Now, don't worry. There's another category here called survival. It's okay to be motivated by survival, you know? put food on the table for yourself, shelter for your family. Like that, that's okay, that's good. We're, we're not speaking against that either. But a lot of what we do in the world comes from the motivation of riding the old bike to get the old pleasures, the satisfactions, the thrills out of this life because we really think deep down that it's the only time we get to experience those things. We haven't embraced the grace of the resurrection. That's what it means. When you, because when you truly embrace the grace of the resurrection, that God's going to raise you up imperishable uh, forever to enjoy him, one another, the created order for eternity. We say this in the gospel class, you should come. It changes everything. Everything changes. You will completely reorganize your life around Jesus' incoming kingdom. You will prioritize his everlasting coming kingdom over this temporal one. And then you will try to help others make the same trade-off. And it's not one step beyond comfortable. It's just natural. It's just natural. Purpose, meaning, joy floods your life. It just floods your life. Temporal returns, they can always be quantified. An eternal return, always infinite. Always infinite. Does your life reflect a pursuit of the quantifiable or the infinite? Consider that question. Consider that question. Now, that's enough of the abstract. Let's talk about what's at stake here, okay? Let's talk about some, some real things in our, in our lives in terms of application, okay? Um, when you don't grasp the grace of the resurrection, you can't do three things. You can't do three things that, that become almost impossible to do. The first thing you can't do when you grasp, when you don't grasp the grace of the resurrection is you can't make disciples, you can't make disciples. Uh, first, without resurrection grace and embracing that, you won't really see the need or have the desire to make new disciples. Conversion might just be a strange topic for you. We bump into this all the time as, as, as people come and consider what, what we're up to here at Sedera. So like, conversion, like, why are you about evangelism? Like, isn't it enough that we can just kind of be family here for a while? We're like, hold on a sec. You need to understand resurrection grace. If how you conceive of our future heavenly life is honestly, and I think this is true for a lot of us, more boring and lackluster than this one, you'll never feel compelled to point someone else there. In fact, you're going to be more prone for other people to point you to this life. That's the reality of it. If you think this life is the best place where you get to see and experience beautiful scenery, thrills, or love, those are the things you're going to pursue. And, and, and the irony is that, is that we're looking for heaven here on earth, but it's not here yet. So it's always going to leave you disappointed, always. 
Always. You'll die unsatisfied. But if, if, if you truly begin to see the next life as Jesus termed it, on the cross, what did he call it? Anybody? Paradise, that's right. Paradise. Where we get new, redeemed, heavenly bodies, more beautiful and complete than before. And heaven comes down to earth and redeems the earth more beautiful and complete than before. We don't just have the summers to explore it. We got all eternity to explore. (laughs) And it's more beautiful. We get to explore in perfect harmony with one another. That's the grace of the resurrection. When we grasp that grace out of love, we naturally try to pull other people to it. Come on, I know this seems like this is, this is all there is, so we've got to maximize it, but there's a greater thing. There's a greater thing we have access to through the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going to be far more satisfying, even if we suffer now. Come back to that in a minute. This is what your gospel articulation might look like without uh, the grace of the resurrection. You're a sinner. You're guilty. Do you feel guilty yet, sinner? Do you feel guilty yet? No? How about if I shame you until you do? Don't you know that Jesus died for your sin? Does that work? As well-intentioned as it may be, does it work? No. No. It doesn't work. Articulating the grace that brings us down into the tomb without the grace that raises us back up again is almost as powerless. It's almost completely powerless in our context. I mean, you tell me what, what attracts you to Christianity more. The second thing you can't do when you don't grasp the, race, the grace of the resurrection is you can't fight sin. You can't fight sin, or, or it becomes very, very, very difficult to fight sin. Now, this might seem counterintuitive to you. After all, um, the grace of the cross is the grace that deals with sin, right? Yes, absolutely. The cross atones for sin. The cross defeated sin. The cross, in a certain sense, is where we confess our sin. But it's not exactly where we go to overcome our sin. That's not where we go to overcome it. This is important but because sometimes this can be communicated even by, by, by the wisest of Christian teachers. They can say, oh, you're struggling with sin. What you need to do is go to the cross and just look at the cross and just see Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and, and, and just look at how much that cost. That grace is so, so costly. That's cost. Look at what your, you, your actions have done to Christ. Let that motivate you not to sin any longer. Well, first... The more sin Christ suffers, the more glory he receives. There's no way around that. And that's so true that Paul had to tell the Romans when he was talking about stuff like this. Hold on, now we don't sin that grace may abound here, okay? We don't sin that grace may abound. But secondly, secondly, and more importantly, this is fighting sin with fear of guilt instead of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. He didn't say there, now consider the cross and you will not gratify and satisfy the desires of the flesh. So, so in, in our present wrestling with sin, we actually need the gift of resurrection empowerment in order to see any progress or growth. This is why he's called the Holy Spirit, the, the sanctifying spirit. He is the one that grows us and cleans us and gives us the power to change and transform it comes from the resurrection. Resurrection makes that possible. Think of it like this. Um, you can link all the sin in your life to the prioritization of the present over the eternal. All of it. 
You can link all the sin in your life to the prioritization of the present over the eternal. Pride, wanting to be seen great in the eyes of others, drunkenness, hatred, envy, image, greed, gluttony, being overbearing and controlling, being passive. They're all symptoms of obsessing over your current state instead of the future one, instead of focusing on the future one. And, and this is what we're going to learn later in this chapter. This is all coming. Like, this is really just introductory. Like, these are pretty high-level concepts. Paul's going to work them all out into more detail as we go through 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but Paul's going to point to how not prioritizing future reality now means less fruit later. Jesus called it rewards, eternal rewards. Makes us a little uncomfortable. Hmm. You see, but when he grasps the the grace of the resurrection, um, our category for sin, it balloons up from just bad things we we do to ways we live our life that prioritizes our flesh and our present world over our future eternal state. Look at what the cross bought for you. It didn't just buy you a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. It bought you a future heavenly body. I keep on saying it. That'll be future, that, that, that will be fully redeemed with all of its desires purified and perfectly met forever. Forever. You see, we typically sin when we feel like life's not fair. Like our needs aren't being met. So, so we take matters in our, in our, into our own hands to, to meet them. This was even the garden. God's not being fair. He's keeping things from me. From my, per, my present experience, God's keeping things from my present experience. But what if this present age of sin, it just means that our bodies are broken and heaven had to leave for a while? What if he's just waiting for the right time to come back and jumpstart an even better earth than before and gift us even better bodies than Adam and Eve had? Is that worth patiently waiting for? Is that worth eagerly helping others get on board to participate and experience. Um, Dave and I have been debating whether to add more principles onto this list because we, we, we hear that you guys want more, right? Um, but there's this patient eagerness that I just rushed up against. In a certain sense, Christians are confident in their present state of affairs because there's a future one coming that's good. It's great. It's going to be incredible. But the, uh, the other end of the spectrum, even they almost feel like they're on a spectrum. There's an eagerness. There's, there, there's a focus to, to take things seriously now that need to be taken seriously while we can take them seriously before this whole thing wraps up into the eternal future. We really hope that that translates to all of our hearts as we lean into 1 Corinthians 15 together. All right, so, so you can't make disciples, you can't fight sin well. And thirdly, when you don't grasp the grace of the resurrection, you can't stand suffering. You can't stand suffering. Christians in America, we walk through our lives. Um, Many of us, a growing number of us, actually aren't from America, which is just such a huge blessing. Um, But Christians here in America, we we can walk through most of our lives without significant suffering. Take me, for instance. I grew up in a middle-class home, went to college, met an incredible woman. I got married, found a job. She found a job she loves. We had three kids easily, all born perfectly healthy. Bought a home in Seattle. No suffering. Like, there's no significant suffering as part of my life until, I guess, like, I crashed my mountain bike and, you know, I had to go to the emergency room for a while. You know, like, but that was just because I was recreating too hard. I was like, I had not enough suffering, so I had to create it for myself. <laughs> Some show it happened. No real suffering. We are living the modern American dream that's designed to shield us from suffering. But eventually, 
we wake up. Eventually. It's coming. Perhaps it's already come for you, suffering. As modern innovation shields us from more and more of it, eventually it comes. Job loss, loss of a loved one, injury, sickness, lasting chronic pain, mental illness, significant betrayal from those closest to you, financial ruin. All these things are just right around the corner for all of us. We are vulnerable, vulnerable beings. Any one of these things could happen to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. Ask ask the, the few in our congregation with gray hair. No hair. Sorry, Mark. The other Mark. They'll tell you. Do you know that's not going to just going to help you get through suffering, but experience it with joy? The grace of the resurrection. Deeper promises of a life that isn't this one, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That is, all the suffering, it's gone. This is how tall, this is how Paul talked about grace in Romans 8. Flip over here. I'm going to read it to you. I just want you to listen to it. I don't want it on the screen. I just want you to be able to listen to it. Um, resurrection grace. So we're, talk, we're in the realm of the Spirit in, in Romans 8. This is where Paul starts to talk about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. That is, of all the stuff that's coming. The promise God's good gifts of grace. Resurrection gave. We're heirs of that. We don't have it yet. If we indeed suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, I love that word, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons and daughters to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. It's birthing something. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we don't see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. That's your patient eagerness. So if, if you're not making disciples, if you're struggling to fight your sin, and if when you suffer you're quick to self-loathing and, and cynicism, I can almost guarantee you that your problem is you haven't grasped the grace of the resurrection. You haven't grasped the grace of the gospel. You're living like this life is all you've got, even if somewhere intellectually you may assent otherwise. And I feel terribly sad for you. Paul feels sad for the Corinthians. All of us can grow in this. Paul will tell us later in chapter 15, if you're not picking up this grace and and experiencing it, why are you even a Christian? It's like drinking the terrible tasting cough medicine without any of the healing effects. Now I'm just scratching the surface on this introduction. 
Um, Come over this next month as we walk through this chapter. Come here open, expecting to experience the resurrection grace in our midst, asking God to send send it. We we, we have this dream and and this, this vision of God pouring out resurrection grace on our community. And when he does that, that lights a fire. That's rebirth. That's renewal. That's what has been historically called revival, which is God's spirit empowering his people to take his gospel seriously and letting it transform them into little Christ. Similar to how Paul was transformed. We're excited for that. If he does that, wow, that's resurrection grace. So as we kind of lean into resurrection grace for the, the next season, come expectant. Come not feeling condemned. Come open for God to use you. He loves you. He wants to set you free. He wants to transform you. He wants to use you in this world in ways far more remarkable than you could ever have imagined. Paul says, look at me. I persecuted the church. I was approving the deaths of the first Christians, overseeing them as they took place. Look what God did to me. We can see that God used him be the most influential Christian outside of Christ, probably in the world. Come hoping for that. Come expecting that. Let's pray.